Finding God in Unexpected Places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. My guest this week is an award-winning writer, speaker, husband, and father who hosts the popular interview show, The Podcast. Having traveled the world and lived in many nations, he teaches from a culturally rich and spiritually inclusive framework. Before becoming a writer, he spent 10 years in charity leadership and administration, and he remains a visionary thinker with a strategic mind. He writes about freedom, hope, and sacrificial love at jonathanpuddle.com. He loves dance music, science fiction, good food, dark beer, and long walks on the beach. He was born in New Zealand, so he does know a few things about beaches. Uh, Jonathan and his family reside in Canada, where they pastor families and children at a thriving community church. I am so excited to welcome to the very first episode of season two of the Messy Spirituality Podcast, my new friend, Jonathan Puddle. Man, it's so good to finally talk to you face-to-face online. Thank you. I'm Likewise. I mean, we've been trying to make this happen for, for a while, and I'm honored to be on the, on the first episode of season two. That's awesome. Well, we've, we've been holding it just for you, Jonathan. <laughs> well, thank you. But I just, you, you, you're one of these guys who's just doing faithful, good work. And oh. I just want to thank you for the work that you do, because you encourage me as a podcaster and as an author. Um, you know, it just, it's a blessing seeing you doing your work week in, week out. Uh, it spurs me on. So, so thank you. I'm honored to be here. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I really appreciate the grace that you've shown me. I think we've originally scheduled this about three or four months ago. And uh, we're just now actually getting to have the conversation. At first, there were computer issues and internet outages. And then COVID hit and wrecked my world for uh, the last couple of months. Um, But here we are. And I'm so excited to talk to you. So let's start off. Give us your spiritual backstory. Did you grow up in an atmosphere of faith? I did. I grew up, actually, my parents were missionaries. I was an MK, as they say, and I guess kind of broadly evangelical. My parents, I think, had an intuition for grace that probably exceeded the language they had for grace and the tools they had for grace. But I think their, their guts were, were really leaning into kind of the radical love of God. And so we grew up, as I said, kind of broadly evangelical. My parents were, uh, would travel around. They were in the performing arts as missionaries. And so we were all over the South Pacific. We were in Europe, France, and Switzerland. I lived in four countries by the time I was seven. And then uh, in the 90s, we were relocated from New Zealand, which is where I was born, to Toronto to join the big revival, the Toronto Blessing. And so I got uh, very specific kind of charismatic DNA woven into my upbringing. And at the time, it was really good stuff. You know, it was God loves you. God is real. God can be experienced. You can encounter this love yourself right now. And, and certainly as a teenager, that was really helpful for me. But also woven into a lot of that was what all of us teenagers were dealing with in the 90s and, and early 2000s and the purity culture and the whole kind of evangelical church machinery. I ended up on staff at the church that I was attending uh, straight out of high school. I had no 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 major career prospects or university lined up. I just wanted to do too many things, which 
in hindsight now, I guess, is why you become a writer. <laughs> so young people listening, <laughs> right. if you're in the last year of high school and you're just not sure. <laughs> you too could be a best-selling author. <laughs> you too could be a best-selling author and make no money <laughs> like the rest of us. But I, I ended up like like yourself I, you know, and many of us in a, in a pretty sudden kind of, I need to deconstruct because, and obviously I didn't have that language at the time. But I got to this point where I'm working at the church, I'm serving, I've been volunteering for years, I know the whole thing front to back, uh, I love God, but I'm getting burned out on the machinery of religious life. And if I turned up at the church building every time that I was quote unquote supposed to be there, and if I was really being a leader who was raising up leaders and in a leadership group, and I don't know, some of you might have been uh, familiar with G12 back in the day. Well, our church was big into that. So all the growth machinery. And, and I realized this is not producing good fruit in my life. And so for most of the, I guess, 2005 to the next 10 years or so, we, we quit church. We moved abroad, my wife and I, and we just kind of hit reset and began kind of saying, okay, God, if you're out there and if you're real, then just guide us step by step. And as with many of us, through a weird, convoluted, non-linear journey, I fell head over heels in love with Jesus. I ended up mysteriously back in church where now I'm a children's pastor. But I just don't, uh, I don't really care for the machinery. You know what I mean? Like, I care about people. And I think God cares about people. And insofar as the, as the machinery serves God and serves people, fine, great, why not? But as soon as it gets in the way, I'll be uh, sitting on the, the deck smoking a cigar and <laughs> whiskey. <laughs> Good for you. Hey, uh, I remember the Toronto Blessing quite a bit. Um, they, the leaders of that, John and Carol Arnott, came to Birmingham. And when I lived in Alabama, I was pastoring there. I went to an event that they led. I was really into the Brownsville revival, which strangely yeah, enough, sure. took place just up the road from where I live right now. Wow. Um, there was a lot of legalism in that movement, uh, especially in Brownsville. Now, I, th I think Toronto was different. It was more focused on the love of God and the Father's blessing. Uh, in the, uh, the AG setting down here in Pensacola, it was more about get your act together and become pleasing to God. And I really responded to that. Was there a part of you that was drawn to legalism or did you just have a vision for the white hot love of God from the beginning? So the Toronto flavor was definitely much less legalistic. Uh, what's, what's really interesting and ironic is that the vast majority of people who came into the, the movement in Toronto weren't Pentecostals. They were all Baptists. And so, so, so which some of you might say, well, what's the, what's the difference if we're talking about legalism? <laughs> but the, the pietistic legalism that's, that's kind of become embedded in Pentecostalism is really difficult to dismantle, I think, and at least in my experience, because you, ha you have this really specific, like, if we aren't wearing our suits and if we are not doing everything just right, we will offend the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God will leave and that would be the worst possible outcome. So there's, the risk isn't worth taking. Whereas all of the kind of Canadian leaders, A, a they're Canadian, and so there's just a different thing going on anyway, let's be honest. But B, I think because so many of them had, had been raised sort of semi-Baptist, they had a real respect for scripture over 
rules. It looks like a lot of Baptists love the rules, but Baptists, I think, really love the Bible. And so as the Spirit got kind of woven in, uh, for many of them, it was very freeing. But one of, the, one of the challenges that I've run into in this movement is, again, I th- like I said about my parents, I think many of them have instinctually this pursuit of the white hot love of God, like you just said, so beautifully. But many, much of the language they have to describe it is, is old and is archaic and needs to be refreshed. And so that's something that I bump into quite regularly. Uh, hey, listen, we're on the same page about these matters, but, but when we talk about the cross, I'm not going to talk about punishment. I'm not going to talk about uh, the debt that like God's offense, because I don't, don't think that's a relevant portion of it. So yes, if you can't tell, it's the white hot love of God <laughs> that drew me in. <laughs> well, I love that. That's one of the things that I love about your heart. And every time I hear one of your podcasts, or uh, especially reading your book, that you just have this genuine affection for the character of God. And I'm so grateful for that. I know that you talked about your parents kind of being zeroed in on the love of God pretty early, and that probably spared you a lot of the toxicity that many of us have experienced. How has your view of God changed over the years? You mentioned a deconstruction season or a spiritual evolution. What did you need a change from? I am actually had a really interesting discussion kind of on some of this with my therapist last week where I'd kind of realized that because my parents were so safe and accepting, my home was a good place. My home was a place where I could ask questions and negotiate and figure stuff out. It was the rest of the world that was a bit scary. And so I had, over the course of my life, a handful of primary school teachers and then pastors who I just wanted to please so badly. And, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of the Enneagram too. I love to help and I, and I tend to not recognize that I have needs and that I have value. And it's very challenging for me to figure out. I'm, I'm all about everybody else. And so it seems to me that what happened somewhere in there is I really got into people pleasing. And the way to do that as a good Christian was to obey the rules and to do well. And I was told that God really needed it in some ways. I knew that like God loved me, but I think part of it was that I just had so much shame about all of my sin and all of my failures. And I was trying hard to be a good young man and not do all the things that I wasn't supposed to do, but I was doing them faithfully. (laughs) And I just felt so ashamed in myself. And I think I took it on really, because when I go back through a lot of my teaching and I even go back through with my friends who grew up in the same movement and they're like, that's weird. You, you heard things that we didn't hear. So some of those things that I heard were God needs you to perform. Like, like you need to keep being worthy of his love. You need to kind of ignore your emotions and ignore your body and just focus on spiritual matters, just, you know, encounters with God. That's what really matters. Uh, the Holy Spirit, because ultimately, ultimately, we're all going to be raptured away and the world is going to be destroyed and we'll be with Jesus in the clouds forever worshiping him. So, so surely if that's eternity, we should be just kind of living that way now. And so let's kind of ignore all these things and, and just have more faith. Those, those were sort of some of the bits and pieces. And I, and I don't know that I was ever explicitly taught all those things, but certainly that's how I internalized it. And then I think another part of it, again, was just the busyness. Just 
well, you've got to be doing this. You've, you've really got to be working hard for the Lord. You've really got to be working hard for the gospel. You know, I'm a good evangelical at heart. I want to disciple all the nations. I want to win the lost. And I hardly ever win the lost. And so I hate myself because I feel like a bad guy. Yeah, I know that feeling very, very well. Yeah, yeah, you get that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, there, there is, a, especially in the Southern Baptist Church that I kind of came up in ministry in, there was such a zeal and such a heart for the souls of the lost. And and we, as part of the conditioning program, we were taught that other people's eternal destination is completely up to us. And totally. we should not grow weary of doing good. You know, there's another soul to win, you know, just one more. And there was always one more. But when other people's eternal well-being depends on me, uh, number one, they're screwed. Number two, uh, I'm exhausted. That's more weight than any of us were ever meant to carry. Totally. So um, how do you fit into the church today? Now, you're, you're north of the border. I'm not sure that Christian nationalism is quite as prevalent there as it is here in the United States, especially since 2016. But that can make it really challenging for some of us to feel like we belong yeah. in a conventional church setting. Now, you are one of the most free, grace-filled loving humans that I've had contact with, and I'm grateful for that. How do you exist in that machine? <laughs> with great difficulty. That's probably the shortest answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, so so here, so my journey is key to this because when we left the institutional church, we were hungry to meet with believers. We were hungry to fellowship. We just wanted something that was more real. We wanted something that wasn't destroying us in the process. And so, you know, I don't know if you remember like Frank Viola's books, Pagan Christianity, all that kind of stuff. I got deep into the house church books and and I was militant about it, man. I was like, you guys, I found the key. And, and I got real preachy with everyone from about, uh, you know, 2006 to 2009, let's say. And, but, and, and so it was, it was a lot of like, I had to go through these layers. And so there was the, the church stuff and the institutional church and moving into a more organic expression of, of church life. And we did have really incredible experiences of, of doing organic church with people, just, just gathering together to see what the Lord would do in our midst, not, not our agenda. And in many ways, that kind of wrecked me for anything less than that, because what I experienced in Christian community, what I began to experience even spilling over into my neighborhood it just convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is willing and God is able. And, and our part, I think, is in some ways really small in the cosmic scheme of things. For us, our part is huge because our part is dying to ourself. And so, like, that's, that's as much as we can give. But, but so much of the time, dying to self really just seems like just reorienting ourselves to love. And sometimes that's like 15 degrees, you know, turn and it feels really costly, but actually it wasn't that, okay. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. Okay. And as I give up my life, I gain it. Right. So I had that passion and I love people and I love God. And I was beginning to see that, that with just a handful of willing souls, God could do wild things. So we moved back to Toronto from living in Finland, actually, where my wife and I were and all our kids were born. 
and we moved out of the city of Toronto where we'd been for a couple of years. And then we, then we moved to another city and, and I ended up rocking up to this church one Sunday morning with my wife and kids because some friends of ours were there and I, we'd moved to the area, right? So I just thought, oh, let's just go check out that church. And they're like, there's like 40 people meeting in a community center and it's messy. And I know that you value messy. <laughs> and like, like there's kids running around throughout the entire service. You know, the guy who's preaching has got like a six month old in his arms kind of balanced on his hip. And I'm like, this looks like my house. This looks like my messy organic church community. This feels good. And and I sat myself down in the second to front row because I knew if I was sitting any further back, I'd get bored and pull out my phone. And so I thought I'm going to sit right up the front. And within probably, dude, like five minutes, I felt the spirit say to me, this is home. Learn to love these people. Take care of their children give your time, give your money. And I was fully in like that, like, who's talking? Get behind me, Satan. I'm like, I was, I was very shocked. I did not anticipate that. And so that was like, I don't know, four, four, five, almost five years ago. And, and so we just sort of became part of the community. And then eventually uh, they took us on as volunteer kids pastors. And, but to, to your point, um, freedom. I'm, I'm blessed that you would say that, that I'm one of the freest people, you know, because that, that is so certainly one of my values and it is difficult in the system, uh, not because of the system as such. We, our pastoral team are young and small and have no desire for any church BS. They're like, Adam and Amy are, are my pastors. They're also some of my best friends. Adam didn't grow up in church. He got saved as an adult. So he kind of like had no room for the BS. And, and Amy, we're totally egalitarian. She does all the work that he does. And it's just like this wonderful team. But here's where it's really painful and hard. Free people are endlessly provocative to people still in bondage. And so mm. I can't give too much detail, uh, but at right now, as we speak, there's been some really difficult, painful uh, loss of relationships in our church over the last six months. Um, accusations, wild gossip uh, surrounding myself and all of my uh, many deceptions, supposedly. And, and I have much compassion for these people that are accusing me of all this stuff. Um, it breaks my heart. It's been very, very painful, but I can see the fear in their eyes, you know, like, like you and I grew up with, if I am, if Jonathan Puddle is deceived and he's going to lead these people down a road, that's bad. Then it's their job to stop me. It's their job to stand up for the righteousness of God. And, and I feel that I don't feel that burden myself anymore, but I remember when I did. And so I have much compassion for those people. I miss some of them who've cut me off and some of them who are still in the community and are causing real pain and difficulty. I am just asking the spirit to move in all of our hearts. I think that if you are trusted and loved by the people around you, you can be free, you can be grace-filled, and you can be infectious. For all those people that are have been difficult and are struggling, there's four or five who, you know, just write to us regularly, right? Or, or speak to us about how life-giving the gospel is according to us. So. Wow. 
Well, I'm grateful you've got the positive voices around you too. Sometimes the uh, the, the the negativity can become overwhelming, and uh, I'm so sorry in the season that you've been in this last six months that you've been experiencing that. Do you have any advice? A lot of people who listen to this program are encountering those negative voices on the daily. Yeah. Uh, from their own family members, from people who they, they really believe they're on a mission from God to set us straight. How do you respond to somebody like that, Jonathan? Yeah, seriously, right? I'm just grabbing my Bible because I'm going to be real spiritual. I'm going to show my spiritual <laughs> receipts right here, man. John 16, verse, well, yeah, let's go verse 1. Jesus is speaking to his to his friends. This is right near the end of his ministry, before the passion, that is to say. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Other where it says, you know, like that I've spoken these things that you would have peace to comfort you. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he is doing God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father and they have not known me. So some people will hear that and they will go, wow, this guy is arrogant <laughs> and judgmental. And I'm like, hey, whatever, man. I'm just quoting the words of Christ the Lord. Right. I mean, as much as we can, let's live in peace. As much as we can, let's not have these discussions on Facebook. As much as we can, let's set healthy boundaries so that we can continue the journey we're on. As much as we can, let's keep offering up the fresh fruit and the fresh fire for those around us who are hungry for it. Let's not allow those damaging voices to derail us from this work because the work is important. People are drowning in a sea of religious toxicity and they believe God hates them or they believe the only reason God can tolerate looking at them is somehow because of Jesus that, you know, and so the need is real. The pain is real. I would encourage people who are in that situation also to remember that those who are attacking them or those who are really troubled and trying to speak the truth in love and all the, all the phrases that we get quoted at, uh, at us, it's being driven by fear. It's being driven by fear. And that should allow us to have a measure of compassion and gentleness because we all know what fear is like. We all know what uncertainty and instability is like. So that doesn't mean that you have to allow people who are being really toxic to continue speaking to you. You're allowed to put boundaries in place. You're allowed to say, hey, listen, this is not a conversation that you and I can have anymore because I value our relationship. I actually want to maintain relationship with you, but the way that this topic ends up landing between the two of us, it puts at risk my ability to continue relationship with you. So can we not talk about this anymore? Or can we set a parameter where we can talk about this uh, with rules in place, whatever that might need to look like for you? And And I think another thing too is that I, I hate to say this because my own guts doesn't like this answer, but I don't think generally we win people over with the eloquence of our arguments. I think that partly it's a work of the spirit 
that we just have to trust God is turning hearts and softening hearts and removing fear, that, you know, it's perfect love that casts out fear. It's not eloquence. It's not logic. It's not reason, usually. It's not statistics or facts, as much as I wish it was. I just read this about this study that has statistically proven that statistics don't change people's minds. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's hilarious because I already believed that. So sometimes it really seems that the vulnerability, you know, uh, I don't, I hesitate to say it because it's tricky and I don't mean to tell people to remain in toxic relationships or, or to remain with people that are really causing damage to them. But as much as you can, being gentle, being vulnerable, offering your story with honesty and and like, hey, yeah, I remember when I was terrified. I remember when someone first suggested to me that the cross wasn't about punishment. And I was like, what does it mean? My whole faith is falling apart. I remember that. And so I get that other people feel that way. So maybe it's it's just leaning into to the compassion for those around them and, and praying for them and just asking God to come and love on their hearts. Hmm. When you were reading the scriptures a few minutes ago, there was an, a genuine affection that was obvious from you about Jesus. Um, A lot of folks who go through a deconstruction season don't know what to do with Jesus when that's over because they don't want the toxic thing they've come out of. And he's sort of the figurehead, you know, the cross and the crown of thorns and uh, the, the blood of the lamb. All of that is so loaded with toxicity for so many people. How does Jesus fit into your faith today? And how did you get from, uh, you know, him being the CEO of the uh, nonprofit organization or the church to having this place in your life? The woman caught in adultery. Hmm. Here's a story where this, this, there's so many layers in this story, and I, I won't even do it justice. I mean, the fact that, that, the actual laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy require the man and woman to both be present. There's all kinds of stuff. I've read lots of conjecture that maybe a man was specifically kind of set up to seduce this woman so that she could be brought. The whole thing is to trap Jesus. And and she is just another pawn in a, in a male dominant game. So there's a lot of layers in that story. And, you know, Jesus dismantles a bloodthirsty mob and he lifts this woman out of shame and dignifies her and 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 when he says go and sin no more we don't need to hear our our evangelical upbringing in that because what what i've been taught most recently is that that's a gift, not a command. He dignifies her and, and gives her what she needs to go and live righteously. Because that's what I think Christ is always offering to each of us. He's offering us the capacity to live righteously. He doesn't demand it of us. He gives it to us freely, at, like freely to us at great cost to himself. Another another one is the uh, the wedding at Cana. Jesus didn't have to do a damn thing, and and it seems like he pushes back against his mother's suggestion that he could solve this problem. And bro, when he solves it, 
you've probably seen this before, he produces something like 700 bottles of wine. Like it's something like 300 gallons of the best wine that anyone has tasted. And so I just feel like, man, if, you're, if your religious life has been shitty, excuse my language, no, go for it. Jesus, Jesus offers you hundreds of gallons of the best freaking wine you've ever tasted. <laughs> and if you don't know that Jesus, then reach out, reach out for him, uh, just, or her or whatever. That's one of the things that, that I found really fun that, I, that you, you'll know I did in the book was I'm like, listen, when you encounter Jesus in your mind, in your imagination, Jesus can be a Middle Eastern brown Jewish man. Jesus can be an African-American woman. Jesus can be a lamb. Jesus can be a lion. Jesus can be a burlap sack. Jesus can manifest in whatever form uh, you need the embodiment of divine love to present itself to you as. Hmm. Like if, if, we, if we're just going to talk in metaphorical terms or, or, or linguistic terms, what is Jesus, right? Uh, according to Colossians, he's the visible image of the invisible God. Uh, John says he is the word of God. And so just if we think ontologically about God as this somewhat difficult to comprehend uh, metaphysical essence, whatever Jesus is, he is the enfleshing of God. He shows us what God is really like. And so we've got to read all of scripture through Jesus, through Jesus on the cross, through Jesus offering everything about himself to all of us for our benefit. Um, and if, if the Jesus that you have still is that CEO of the religious machine, then I would Here's the prayer that I would encourage you to pray. Holy Spirit, I need to see the Jesus who tips over tables to remove every obstacle that would keep me from God. So come and tip over every obstacle in my life, in my mind, in my psychological framework, in my theology, Jesus, come and tip over all the tables and show me what God is really like. Pray that and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a very loaded, dangerous prayer in the best way possible, right? Yes, I mean, because you, some of you may not want to pray that. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of us feel like we've been through that. You know, that, that, that's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, my spiritual evolution was not running away from Jesus. It was Jesus driving me to the other side and saying, uh, this has never been where you belong. And that's why you're so miserable. That's why you hate it here. It's because you didn't fit. But look where the freedom is. And uh, I'm so grateful, man. That was such a, uh, a great bit about Jesus right there. I'm so grateful for that. You recently released the 100th episode of your podcast. Is that right? I did, yeah. Yeah, it's been wild. That is incredible. That is such a milestone. Tell us what the podcasting experience has been like for you. You've gotten to talk to some really incredible people. Yeah, it's been exciting. It's been an honor. I started it just because I was trying to get a book published, not this book, a different manuscript. And, you know, the publisher said, oh, you've got a great message, but no one knows who you are. Come back when when you're famous. And starting a podcast was sort of like the thing you're supposed to do. So I started a podcast. But, you know, as as you know, it's so much work. After After like five or six months, Fame and glory was not a sufficient motivator <laughs> for me. It's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it. So 
I, I hit pause and, and I was at, I was at a writing retreat with some friends and, and we were all kind of saying, okay, where, where's everyone at taking stock? And they said to me, Jonathan, we think you've got a real gift for the podcast and, and, and you should keep doing that and find whatever motivation you need to do it sustainably, do it more frequently, do it weekly. Cause I had been doing it biweekly. Uh, so I kind of said, okay, what, what does this mean? And, and I realized I just love talking to people. I just love making new friends and I love what we're talking about. I love hearing people's stories. And so I thought I could just, I could just do that and just record it. And, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you know, the quality got better because it was that much more authentic and integrous, you know, and, and then instead of having these really amazing experiences like Max Lucado and, and Paul Young and others where we got vulnerable. And, and these these guys and women and, uh, had, had had a really incredible time with Priscilla Shirer and, and various others, Andy Colbert, Stephanie Tate, where it just got so vulnerable and raw that for me it was just sacred ground. And and so the podcast has been my spiritual journey. It's been where I get taught from. Um, you know, no disrespect to to my church, but. I get the world's experts on whatever I want on my show and they teach me things. So, you know, it's hard to compete with. And but, but also another part of that too was, and I don't know if you've struggled with this, but part of it for me was like, does the world need another podcast by like a white male? Like what, 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 how can I use my power and privilege and responsibility well? And so I realized that for me, a big part of that is setting the table for other people that I can bring people onto the show where they can share their stories. Um, and I can show to other men, especially, um, this is how we can use our power by letting other people speak. We can use our power to learn. We can use our power to listen. So it's, it's been deeply transformative in my life and, and has produced incredible friendships. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, it's very special. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I got into podcasting not not in a pursuit of fame, but just I, I really just wanted to have conversations with people like Paul Young and Brad Jerzak, right? I mean, I just right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that I get to share those conversations with other people uh, is just a bonus, and I'm so grateful for that. And I've gotten to hear some stories of people I would have never met without a podcast. But yes, I remember the episode that we did with Paul Young. I mean, there was just a point I wanted to take my shoes off. It just yeah, felt like this absolutely. is sacred. This is holy ground. Um, there, there was a part yeah. I remember as a Southern Baptist pastor and, and the shack came out and I had a problem with it. I mean, I was in Alabama in sure. the buckle of the Bible belt. I, I did not think God needed to be presented as a, a black woman, you know, because God's the, the father. Hell. And why do we have a problem with that? And all this kind of thing. And I remember some of those conversations I was a part of. And that came back to me while I was talking to Paul Young. And so I apologized to him for it. And he started crying. Mm. Yeah, he did. And I'm like, these are the conversations that heal us. These are the yeah. conversations that are worth having. And these are also conversations yeah. that we almost never have on Sunday morning between 10 and 12. Yeah. That's actually on that point, a good friend of mine just listened to the hundredth episode and he, he messaged me and he said, that was one of the most impactful conversations mm. I've ever heard in my life. And why couldn't we just do church like that instead of one talking head? Yep. Have have the vulnerability of a conversation. Who knows? Maybe some of us should should be exploring that. But but either way, that's it, man. That's mm -hmm. it. The, the humanity and the divinity. Oh, it's amazing. It's a beautiful mess. 
<laughs> uh, you released your first book recently. You are enough learning to love yourself the way God loves you. It's such a gift. I'm so grateful for this. I, I read it when it was first released. It's incredibly inspiring and hopeful. Why did you write the book and who did you write it for? Well, I had gone on this kind of weird journey in 2019 where I, I just kind of felt the spirit prompt me like, you know, you blame everyone else for not loving you. But um, it's time that you kind of owned it for yourself and learned to love yourself. And I was like, ah, I don't know what that means. I would had a guy on the podcast again, and he said to me, you know, Jonathan, what would happen if you spent a whole year thinking about how amazing and wonderful and loved you are and, and let that go deep into the root systems of your belief? Like, what would happen? You know, and I was kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, great question, and just kind of moved on. But in my guts, like something like lodged, <laughs> like, oh, oh, that's like a, a shim being hammered into a, a little crack that I would rather not be there. And, and so I lay down on my couch in early 2019 and I said, okay, God, walk me through this. Teach me how to love myself. And, you know, I, I, lay, I lay down on the couch and I said, Jonathan, I love you. And it felt super weird. <laughs> it felt like uh, Tim Curry from Home Alone 2. That's exactly you know, what I, I thought love of. love you. That's exactly the line that I thought of when you said it. I, I kind of inflected it that I way think on you purpose. Did. That <laughs> was very well. You and, did a very and, good impersonation. And what, is, and what does the guy say from the, from the video in response to that? You got to do better than that. <laughs> That's right. And that was exactly the way my heart felt. That was mm. exactly the way my heart felt. You got to do better than that. Mm. And so over like 60 days, I, I went on this really trippy journey of learning to love myself. And, and, and that included books and reading and meditation and contemplative spirituality. And it kind of was a whole drawing together of a whole bunch of different threads that I had been learning over the last 10 years, including a lot of it through, through the podcast and people I'd been meeting and talking to therapists and talking to different people and learning about trauma and and after like 60 days of like really quite in, quite daily time of, of working in my heart, learning to feel all my emotions, learning how to deal with them and what to do with feelings and exposing codependent tendencies in my life, all kinds of like, it was like a, just a, like a ball of yarn, like a, a sweater that was just all starting to unravel that was having really good fruit in my life and my marriage and my community I thought to myself, oh man, I, I, I wonder if I could write, I, I, I can tell what all these elements are. I know what they all are. They're really quite distinctly clear. I wonder if I could write something that would stop other people from having to do a deep dive in any one of these areas to get the benefits. If I could just tease out enough of it and then somehow harmonize and, and synthesize all these things together, man, that would be awesome if, if this worked. And so that was kind of the idea. That was really all, all it was. Uh, this other manuscript that I've been working on for like five years, which was a lot more theology, I just kind of put that on the back burner and I went straight to work on this devotional. I, I whipped out a draft in a month or two and I sent it out to like a hundred beta readers and I had no idea if it would work. And I just didn't even know. And, and people started coming back like, oh my gosh, this is, this is life-changing. And I, I was as shocked as anybody because I really didn't know. Because some of the tools, you know, are drawn from like really like, they're really like inner healing, spiritual, uh, spiritual direction kind of tools that 
that typically re- rely on another person. And so I didn't know how much of that you could do on yourself. So that's where it came from. And, and, and then I got feedback and, and then I pu- you know, self-published it in, in September 2020. And it's just been very humbling and wonderful. You know, the things people write to me, man, it just, uh, it wrecks me. I'm in tears. People saying, you know, I've been a believer for 30 years, for 40 years. And, and, I'm, and I'm on day three of your book. And I just came to believe that I am the beloved son or daughter of God. And I'm just like, oh, for one person, it's worth it. For one person. Yeah. Well, I know some people hear devotion and they think back to, you know, the quiet time that they were raised with in the machine, you know, Uh, it's not like that at all. And I really want to encourage people. um, We heal sometimes best with a deliberate spiritual practice. And the 30 days laid out in this book are a spiritual practice for healing. And Jonathan, you just dismantle so many lies that we've believed and teach us to recognize truth when we hear it. And I'm so grateful. Would you read us an excerpt from the book? Just something that's caught your attention, something that's caught your heart. Yeah, I'd love to. Since we were talking about Jesus, then let, let me read day five, Humanity Defined, because... I think that would be very applicable. And, and, and I'm so glad you said it's not like any other devotional because that's been so funny. I've, I've just found that because I hate devotionals, man. And, <laughs> and I, used to, I used to run a Christian bookstore. And I mean, those were, things were our bread and butter. But, but they are a mile wide and an inch deep. They yeah. so often, uh, hey, if it, look, I mean, forgive me, if they bring you encouragement and sure. spur you on, more power to you. Great. Yes. Read all the devotionals. But the number of people who've come to me and said, you know, I've never read anything like this, certainly never a devotional that actually like cuts deep. And in some cases, I've warned people like, like, this is not going to encourage you (laughs) on a Monday morning, (laughs) just like, just like to go. It will encourage you that you are deeply valuable, (laughs) but that might bring painful things to, to the surface. So uh, yeah, it's definitely not, I could do all things through a verse taken out of context. <laughs> right? <laughs> I love that. Okay. This is humanity defined. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's Colossians chapter one, verses 15 and 19. Many of us were raised with a picture of God that isn't very nice. God has often been portrayed as an angry, old, white man who was hard to please and harder still to understand. He had a long list of rules that must be followed to the letter, or we would be punished. He judged the world from a distance, living high above our messy lives like Zeus or William Blake's Ancient of Days, reaching down to smite us when we were especially naughty. On day four, we discovered the pain that we face in life, the behaviors we adopt in an effort to survive, and how we inadvertently hurt people along the way. Since it's so easy for us to make those choices that hurt ourselves and others, and since we've been taught that God is so holy and separate from us, many have placed the blame for our failings on our human nature itself. Some of us were raised to believe that the core of our humanity is depraved and wretched and unworthy of love or attention, and that it's only by the charity of God that he even deigns to have anything to do with us. But Jesus exposes each of these ideas as false. When God became a human, 
Jesus revealed that our humanity is still intrinsically good. How else could good become human if human wasn't good? Are we wounded and in need of healing? Definitely. But we're not evil or loathsome, and God's grace isn't charity, it's genuine love. God elevate Jesus rather elevates our vision of both God and humanity. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. If we want to honestly consider what God is like, we must loosen our grip on the preconceived notions formed in us by Old Testament prophecies and pagan religions. If we want to know what God is like, we must look at Jesus. When we do, we might see the following. God is like the mother you want when you've tripped and scraped your knee. God is like your older sibling who hangs out and takes you fishing and hiking. God is like that friend who enjoys quiet walks and sitting together by a lake. God is like the skilled doctor you need when you're facing a health crisis. God is like the gentle nurse you need when you're recovering. God is like your dad when he helps you out of a tricky situation. God is like that friend who shows up at your party and you know fun things are going to happen. John 14, 7-9 reads, If you really know me, you'll know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, then that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. I'll pause right there. I think that's our problem, uh, Jason, is that we're all like Philip right? We've been staring at Jesus. He's been with us all this time, but we still don't get it. Jesus says, God looks like me. Everything Jesus did was to show us exactly what God was like. It culminated with him dying on a cross to defeat death itself and show us that God would never lift a hand against us. If we want to honestly consider what humanity is like, we must loosen our grip on the preconceived notions formed in us by our failures and our traumas. Where our expectation of humanity often looks like losing our temper as soon as we get hangry, Jesus offers a humanity where a naked, bleeding man hanging on a cross still has the presence of mind to care for his mother. The hope that Jesus offers us is that even in extreme anguish and trauma, we can hold on to the truth of who we are and not lose ourselves. When we've spent a lifetime debasing ourselves, finding comfort in all the wrong things, falling short of the image of God within us, Jesus offers that image right back to us, having cleansed it and polished it with his own blood. Our journey towards wholeness is not a journey of escaping our humanity, but a journey to discover the truth of it. As Jesus also says, I look like you. You carry the divine imprint. You carry the capacity for self-sacrificial love. You carry more wisdom than Solomon. You carry more beauty than all the prettiest flowers. Beautiful. Friends, I encourage you to get to know Jonathan, get a copy of his book, check out the podcast. Recent episodes have featured William Paul Young, Andy Kolber, Stephanie Tate, John Mark McMillan, Brad Jerzak, Father Kenneth Tanner, and so many other guests that I know you're going to love. We'll include links to Jonathan's website, book, podcast, social media in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Jonathan, before I let you go, tell us, what are you working on? What's next for you? 
Actually, just this morning, I got a text back from a co-author. We're going to start working on the youth and teen edition of You Are Enough. We've had a bunch of folks say, oh man, I wish my teenage girls especially could read this kind of thing and really come to see their bodies as beautiful, see their soul and spirit and every part of them as wonderful. So that's what we're starting to work on right now. And my goal is actually to have that out in 2020, uh, 2021. Sorry, that would be weird. So, um, so you're a little I've late been, if it's in 2020. I've been watching too much Star Trek Discovery. That's what's happening. <laughs> um, yeah. So later 2021, hopefully the youth, uh, youth and teen edition of that will be out. And then, uh, yeah, I got a bunch of exciting things in the back burner as well. Planning a, a fam, like a kid's version for parents and and various other things. So awesome. And, and the big thing, pray for me because that book that I was, the manuscript I mentioned, I'd been working on before. I'm coming back to that one soon. And that's basically now that you know that you're enough and you've done the work in your own heart to embody the love of God in your own life. How do you raise your kids? How do you go to work? How do you go to church? How do you engage in culture and society and embody that love? How do, how do you rethink discipline? How do you rethink management? How do you reapproach all of life in practical ways through that uh, radical, other-centered, self-sacrificial love of God that reinforms us? So that um, that's the next big, big project that I'm that I'm going to tackle at some point later this year. Well, I'm really looking forward to that book as well. I hope you'll come back on the Messy Spirituality Podcast when that one's available so that we can let everybody know about it. would love to. Jonathan, I love your heart, brother. Keep reminding people how loved we've all always been. That's the stuff that changes the world for anybody brave and vulnerable enough to believe it. Amen. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your heart with us today. Thanks so much. Thanks, bro. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. If you found it meaningful, please rate and review the show on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by following the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or by joining our listener-exclusive Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You can help us produce future episodes by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash messy spirituality. Finally, check out Jason's weekly Pathios column at messyspirituality.org. We'll be back soon with another new episode.